Hi, and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson, filling in this week for my colleague, Jeff Young. The college affordability crisis is a familiar story to most Americans. A simplified version often goes that state funding for higher ed institutions has decreased dramatically over the years, which has translated into massive tuition hikes for students and their families. Sandy Baum, a fellow in the Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute, watches the issue and its proposed solutions closely. She and other researchers have pointed out that often the story gets boiled down to examples of students trapped in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And while this may be the case for some students, it's not always the full picture. Adding to that complexity of affordability and financial aid, a handful of startups and nonprofits have pitched themselves as a solution for students, whether it's helping them find and apply for financial aid or by offering shorter term and cheaper alternative degrees. Today, Baum is here to talk about these issues and how innovative approaches are or aren't helping the college affordability crisis. But first, a quick message. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge webinar, Making EdTech Efficacy Actionable. If you've ever wondered whether the technology in your school is actually improving student learning, this panel is for you. To learn more, visit edsurge.com e slash webinars and click register now. Sandy, thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. So tuition has skyrocketed, but we know there are a lot of additional costs associated with college. There's housing, transportation, and plenty of others. And one criticism of free community college programs is that they don't account for these expenses always, and students still struggle to afford college and end up still taking out loans. So from your perspective, are these programs, uh, so to say, free enough? There are lots of uh, weaknesses to free community college programs. One of them is that um, free means tuition free. Uh, it does not usually mean that your whole budget is covered. The reality is that for low-income students, a very large percentage of low and moderate income students get their tuition covered at community colleges, even without these programs, because they are eligible for need-based grant aid. There are federal grants, there are Pell grants, and there are state grants, unless they live in a few states that don't do this, will cover their tuition and fees. So most free community college programs are what we call last dollar programs, where they say, if you do not have enough grant aid to cover your tuition and fees, then we'll give you money to cover the rest of it. We'll erase the rest of it. So most of the free community college programs are only giving extra money to people who aren't really poor, who, are, who can afford to pay the tuition. They're not helping low-income students at all in terms of giving them extra money. And what we would need would be if you actually erased the tuition and the low-income students could keep their Pell Grants, then they could use that money to help cover their books and supplies and their living expenses. Mm -hmm. So just saying free tuition absolutely does nothing to help financially most of the low-income students. So it's true, it, it does not address the problems that students face in meeting their living expenses while they are in school. And the example that you gave of, of what this could look like in order to be more supportive for low-income students, uh, are there any examples of that actually happening right now? There are some of the promised local programs, I think, that do that. 
there are some efforts to sort of, you know, you can have $1,000 to pay for your tuition and fees, but no, the uh, free community college program that the Obama administration proposed at the national level would have been a program that would have made the tuition go away and let people keep their Pell Grants. But the fact is that's a much more expensive way to do it. And that's the reason that that's not the way it usually happens. Now, you've also said before that the type of a degree that a student earns is part of the college cost equation. I was wondering if you could first just explain that a little bit more. Sure. When people talk about is college affordable or not, unfortunately, too often what they're actually saying is it's expensive. And you think that things that are expensive are worse for people than things that are cheaper. And the reality is that college is an investment. And people go to college for a number of reasons, and we hope that one of those big reasons is to learn and to think better and to improve their lives. But it also is, of course, to improve their employment opportunities and to increase their wages. And for most people, college is a very good investment. So you pay for it up front, and then it pays off over the long run. And what that means is that it's actually, it, the question is, is it a good investment? And if you buy something that's cheap, but you end up throwing it in the garbage can the next day, it was really not worth it. And the same thing holds for a college. If you just pick the cheapest program, but it turns out to be a lousy school, they don't have enough support systems, you don't graduate, or you graduate and you can't get a job with your degree, then it doesn't matter how little you paid for it, it wasn't worth it, it wasn't affordable. However, you might invest in a relatively expensive education and it will pay off over your life and it turns out that you make much more money over the rest of your life than you would have otherwise made and that means that it's affordable you can if you borrowed money you can pay it back out of your earnings premium without using up that earnings premium and you'll be much better off and you will have had an affordable education even if it was expensive. So the value of what you're buying is very important. So at EdSearch, we've been taking a look a lot at micro-credentials and sort of online alternative degrees. And there's certainly been an uptick in the number of alternative online degrees and, and badges over the years. So when you talk about the value of a degree being part of the cost equation, what do you make of these and, and what are some of the pros and cons you see here? Well, one of the issues with um, many of these certifications is that they may pay off really well, but that actually the people who benefit from them are frequently people who already have gone to college. So um, it's really important to um, divide these badges and certifications up and to divide the people who are taking advantage of them up into the categories of where they are when they start out. So like these coding boot camps that were all the rage for a while, um, the people who seem to be most successful with them were people who already had bachelor's degrees. Many online programs, we know about online learning, that it can be wonderful for many people, but the, the people who don't already know how to study and learn, the people who have not been successful in school already are least likely to benefit from them. They are most likely to have outcomes that are not nearly as good as outcomes in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to paint these with a broad brush. I mean, it's, very clear that for many people, learning specific skills and getting certified in an occupation is a terrifically important thing to do, but to generalize about them, about them I think, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the uh, pitches that folks who are advocates of these sorts of 
micro-credentials and, and shorter term, often cheaper programs, is that it can be an alternative to paying the, the thousands of dollars that a degree might cost. Do you, do you buy that at all? The, this is not really about college affordability. I mean, I, I think that the issue is that many people are starting college programs that they don't finish. Hmm. And that's a terrible problem. So if all you know is I'm supposed to go to college and you have no idea what you want to do and you go and you, you know, go to a school that doesn't serve you well or you wander around and you take a bunch of classes and you end up with nothing, that's really not a good plan. There's a lot of uh, evidence that having more structure, like sort of there's a whole movement towards guided pathways so that mm -hmm. you are not just told to catalog, take a million classes, do whatever you want, but you have a goal and you go along the path to that goal. That's really important. And these like micro-credentials and badges and so on are generally very specific mm -hmm. and you're starting out and you're, you, you know what your goal is and um, this might be able to get you to your goal so you're not spending three years taking who knows what for no reason. You can do it in a shorter time and achieve your goal. And that can be very helpful for a lot of people. So I, I, that seems really important. And in that sense, it certainly helps with the affordability problem. Mm -hmm. But it's not at all clear that, that these things are in general cheaper per course or cheaper per year than a college degree. So in some cases, they're going to be helpful. I mean, if there is a, if you have a job and you know that if you've got a specific skill that they're unwilling to train you for on the job and you could find a place where you could get that and you can do it and, and it's not too expensive, that seems really promising and you should do it. Um, but um, it, it again, it's sort of saying anything you can do that is shorter or that's online or is not at a, a traditional institution, that would be a wrong thing to say to people because some of the valuable things that you do will be outside of educational institutions mm -hmm. and others will be inside them. There's a number of nonprofits and for-profit startups that have formed in recent years to address college affordability by helping students find and apply for financial aid and scholarship. Are these ideas new? And uh, either way, do you see some of these newer startups making a dent in the issue? It is not in any way a new idea that you might charge people to help them get financial aid. It, this has been something that has um, been a serious problem for people for many years. You should not have to pay anyone to do a financial aid application to find where you apply to get the financial aid that you have coming to. The federal government has a form that everybody has to fill out. Institutions will help you, nonprofit organizations will help you, you can get help online. You do not have to pay to apply for federal financial aid or for institutional financial aid, but I would be very careful before recommending to anyone that they spend money to apply for financial aid. Is there a concern that, that startups in the college affordability space are just cashing in on one of the biggest challenges facing students today? Yes. Anything there is that is hard to do, that people have inadequate information about, you will find people trying to make money off of it. And um, so that that's a big problem. I mean, it's, of, of course, people, of, this is a very complicated thing that people have inadequate information about. They know it's really important. People are very vulnerable and not a new thing. So you've got to be really careful of those things. I know you've done some research around who uh, high levels of student debt impacts the most. Um, and I was wondering if you can explain that research a little bit more there and why that distinction is important. So the student debt problem 
is not by and large a problem of students borrowing a lot of money. It's a problem of students borrowing money and then not uh, getting an education that is a good value or that turns out in retrospect to be affordable. So um, in other words, sort of the default rates on student loans are inversely related to how much you borrowed. So the people most likely to default are people who borrowed less than $10,000. I mean, that accounts for a huge percentage of the default. People who borrow a lot of money are less likely to default. And that's because those are people by and large who went to school for a long time. They have at least a bachelor's degree and most of them who have huge amounts of debt also have some sort of a graduate education. And so they, they are much more likely to repay their loans than people who borrowed a little bit. But if you look at, like, if you just look at bachelor's degree recipients and you say, which bachelor's degree recipients graduate with the highest levels of debt? So you're sort of controlling for, okay, these are people who went to college and got a bachelor's degree. First of all, people who are older borrow more than people who are younger. So adults going back to school. And part of that is simply that the federal government has higher loan limits for older students. So they're allowed to borrow more. And, of course, they don't have parents who could borrow instead. But they, you, you are allowed as an older student to borrow more money, and they do borrow more money. And they're much more, they borrow for their living expenses, right? It's not that they're going to expensive colleges, although they are more likely to go to for-profit colleges. Um, many of them go to for-profit colleges. They borrow a lot for that reason. And they borrow for their living expenses. So older students are quite vulnerable. Black students are vulnerable. Black students borrow significantly more at every degree level than people from other racial ethnic groups, including Hispanic students. So um, black students who get their bachelor's degrees, one tend to be older and have been in school for a longer time than others. They are more likely to go to for-profit institutions than others. Um, and they just have much higher default rates and more difficulty repaying their loans. Of course, they come from lower income families, families with lower asset levels. They earn less when they graduate. They have every strike against them. So we should be worried about the problem that black students are borrowing more and having more trouble repaying their loans than others with similar levels of education. Mm -hmm. So black students and older students and students who go to for-profit institutions are the students who borrow the most for their, for their level of education. Um, and, that is, um, and that's a problem. But it's not, I mean, sort of the image of, you know, here's this middle-class white student going off and getting a bachelor's degree and, you know, having $100,000 of debt. That is just so rare. It's just that mm -hmm. is there are a few people in that situation. Those are not the people we need to be worried about. So the other thing I want to ask you, you know, it's not uncommon to hear that the cost of college isn't worth it anymore. What's your response to that narrative when you hear it? It's extremely irritating and very frustrating. And almost everyone who says that is sending their own children to college. I mean, the return, on, the average return to a college education is as high as it has ever been. And it's just not, the, the payoff doesn't have to keep rising over time in order to be very worth it. And, and so it's just the best investment that most people could make. It is true that too many people are going to college and not completing. And if you go to college and you don't complete, you get very little of the benefit. So it means you have to make decisions that are good. You can't just go to college. You have to think about where you're going and why you're going and what you're going to study, um, just as you would if you were starting a small business. You wouldn't just say, oh, I'm going to open a business. You would try to figure out which businesses will have a good rate of return. And you need to do that when you go to college. But the idea that college isn't worth it, 
I mean, all the people who say that are people who say, well, I'm going to send my kids to college, but your kids maybe aren't smart enough to go to college or whatever that is. It is other people's children. And maybe they don't want to pay for other people's people's children to go to college. But the payoff, I mean, I mean, it's true. There was a, a terrible op-ed in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago that said exactly this. It's not worth it anymore. It's not worth it for low-income students. Mm-hmm. And it, it made a crazy comparison. I mean, it is true that, unfortunately, in our society, earnings are highly correlated with your where you came from, with your parents' earnings. So college bachelor's degree recipients who came from high-income, highly educated families do tend to make more than bachelor's degree recipients who come from um, less privileged backgrounds. But the people from the less privileged backgrounds who have bachelor's degrees make much more than the people from their same backgrounds who don't. The clear way to move up from a background where you're not starting out high up in the income distribution is to earn a college degree. It absolutely pays off. Not every degree pays off. It doesn't pay off for every individual. But by and large, on average, college pays off extremely well. And it's terrible advice to just say to people, don't go, it's not worth it. What are some uh, innovations around higher affordability that you would like to see? So it's very clear that a very important thing is that we need to have need-based aid. We need to make sure that students from low and moderate income backgrounds who don't have parents who can help them pay get money to help them make up for the fact that they don't have parents who can help them pay, right? So if you just think about it, middle and upper income students have a scholarship in the form of their parents are paying for it, and lower and moderate income students don't. And the only way to do anything to level the playing field is to put more money into the hands of people, students who come from backgrounds where they don't have other resources. So that's just a a huge issue is we have to have more aid well targeted at those students. But the other issue is that a big part of college affordability is college success. College, to be affordable, you have to succeed. And so there's a lot of evidence that actually putting more money into the institutions that educate low-income students can have a bigger impact than just handing the money to the students. So if your institution has an extra $1,000 to provide you with the support services that you need to succeed, that could be more important for you than just giving you an extra $1,000 or cutting your tuition by $1,000. So again, the issue is that thinking about affordability is only the price and not asking the price of what is really leading us down some very destructive paths. We need to make sure that when people are in college, there are the resources there to help them succeed. Otherwise, they're going to end up with a very unaffordable college education. The second example is really interesting that you shared around giving institutions more money to use around student success efforts. When institutions do get money for that purpose, is it framed around the issue of cost and affordability, um, or is it completion and graduation rates? Like, do those conversations ever ever meet? Yeah, not enough. I mean, that's a it's a very important point that people the the affordability conversation these days tends very much to be around how can we make it cheaper? Like, if it's if it's free, if it's cheap, that's how you make it affordable. And one of the big concerns about free college is that if all you're focused on is making sure people don't pay too much, then 
there isn't going to be money for the institutions to offer quality educational experiences. So we need to try to integrate those conversations more. It's just a college affordability is not the same thing as cheap college. Mm, yeah. It has to be a, 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 a education of value that people can manage to pay for. I want to switch gears just a little bit here. I know earlier this year you testified before the Senate Health Committee regarding uh, reauthorizing the Higher Education Act and improving college affordability. So looking ahead, how seriously do you think senators are considering college costs? And what are you expecting to come out of that if the act is reauthorized? Well, it's not looking good for the act being reauthorized uh, in the short run. So it's really going to depend, I think, on, you know, the composition of Congress at the time that the act gets reauthorized. Um, I think that there are some important things that Congress can do and may do. They may strengthen student loan programs. They may uh, make income-based repayment, loan repayment simpler, more transparent, easier for students to navigate. And that's very a very important piece of college affordability because if you are one of the people who goes to college and borrows money and then it doesn't pay off, then that is a really difficult situation to be in. And we need to have a system that makes it possible for you to easily get the insurance that you need that if it doesn't pay off, you're, you're not going to be stuck repaying these loans that, that didn't do you any good. So I think that the loan repayment system is something that's very important for the college affordability um, uh, issue and that we have some hope of. Um, I worry that um, some people are thinking about college affordability um, for middle and upper income students instead of thinking about college affordability for the people who really can't afford it. So if you focus too much just on the tuition price, you end up focusing on the people who are paying that tuition price because they're not getting financial aid. And in fact, um, uh, many of those are the people who are who, who can actually afford to pay it. So, for example, there is um, um, a bill in Congress that would um, that it, it addresses endowments. Um, some people are very worried about the endowments of the few wealthy colleges that have big endowments. And they want them to spend a certain amount of the endowment on financial aid. And um, this, this bill um, from Representative Reed from New York actually wants them to spend it on people who are on working class people, not poor people, like people up, whose incomes are above the poverty level, like for a certain, a certain range above the poverty level. And it's, it's not clear why you wouldn't include people whose incomes are also below the poverty level, right? So if you're really concerned about that. But if you say you have to lower the tuition price, I mean, like some, like the idea that most students don't go to highly selective private colleges. So in a way, what happens at the highly selective private colleges is sort of irrelevant for the college affordability problem. If you think about the tuition price at Yale, for example, the only people who pay the sticker price at Yale are people whose incomes are so high that even with a you know, $70,000, $75,000 price tag, they are being able to afford that. So if you lowered the tuition, it wouldn't help anybody who's in, in any way, you know, who, who's not rich. Hmm. So um, we can argue about what Yale might do with its endowment, 
but that is certainly not going to solve the college affordability problem. So we really need to be focused on the institutions that educate the vast majority of students. Those are public institutions, and they are, are not necessarily the public flagships, but public broad access, public foyers, community colleges. And the other thing we really need to do, and I would hope that this would happen, but also not uh, immediately on the horizon, is that we need to protect students from the kind of fraud and abuse that they get at many institutions, particularly at many for-profit institutions. This podcast was produced by me, Sydney Johnson, and next week you'll be joined again by Jenny Abamu for more on the future of education and technology.